0: Hi, and welcome to the Unplugged Debate. On this podcast, we delve into the ideas surrounding human interaction with both nature and technology. Talking to people about their time in the outdoors, starting from when they were younger all the way through to present day. Developing a picture on who and what motivates them to be outside, and why they do the things they do in the outdoors. Crossing over into talking about their technology usage and how that's changed throughout their life and speaking to them about the different types of technology they use on a day-to-day basis, from their mobile phones to their running shoes. Once we've developed a good picture of them, we incorporate that into how they think technology has changed their outlook on life and their time in the outdoors, and finishing with how they think technological development has changed society on a wider scale. So hello and welcome. (laughs) So, on today's episode, we have Lorna McDowell. Lorna was born in Scotland and is now living out in Singapore. How long have you been out in Singapore now?
1: I have been here for seven and a half years.
0: Oh, seven and a half years.
1: Quite a significant chunk of time. (laughs) Yes,
0: certainly is. Well, Lorna has a a great affinity for the outdoors. You've, uh, You've run two marathons, one in Edinburgh and one in Singapore for charity. You've also climbed... What what mountain was it you climbed in Borneo?
1: Um, It's Mount Kinabalu.
0: Kinabalu. How was that?
1: That was amazing. I was a stand-in. Somebody dropped out. One of my friends was going with a group and and someone dropped out and said, do you want to take my ticket? And I'm so glad I did. Um, Hard to train for in Singapore because you don't have any hills in Singapore um <laughs> but I mean it was fantastic really really superb you you get to the summit for sunrise and then you yeah we were lucky that it wasn't overcast that time so we managed to see the sunrise which was just glorious that's, I
0: bet that was amazing and then you also did the 24-hour challenge it was the Caledonia challenge in from was it Fort William to Korean Larrich
1: that's right yeah you do a little bit of the West Highland way in reverse
0: right Oh, very nice. That's still quite a nice bit. Going through Glencoe and, and things like that. Oh, it
1: was fabulous. Yeah, but it was so grueling. There's a part where you're just walking through the night, and all you've got for stimulation is your headlamp showing you your feet and rocks for <laughs> a few hours, and that was that was hard. Yeah, the mind wants to give up.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah yeah. I've, I've done one of those one of those types of challenges as well. I think it was at two o'clock in the morning at an aid station, having a twenty minute nap and. <sighs> And then having a full English breakfast at two o'clock in the morning, <laughs> yeah, you know, as you do. So, but you've worked in the um, human resources area for the last twenty years, and you've yeah. got a postgraduate uh, is it a postgraduate diploma in uh, human resource management, and you're a, that's right. You're part of the chartered membership scheme for the for that as well, and that's then you're right, studying yeah. um, a mindfulness masters at the uh, University of Aberdeen.
1: I am yeah I've got one year left after this is year two that we're finishing up and then there's one year left so yeah that's fantastic.
0: We we will go through that because it's quite interesting I want to hear a bit more about that and then you've also now just started your own business um, called Focal Mind and that is that's looking right. at improving well-being and productivity in organizations.
1: Yes that's so, right.
0: So you've taken the plunge and decided, do you think that I can I can do this uh, on my own and go for it?
1: Yeah, I've, I'm trying. I, I think this is the right time. It feels like the right time to try, you know, and I think that the main driver of that is just seeing the same types of situations play out in organisations and mm. um, the same types of suffering and challenges unfold. And I've helped people in the previous employers I've had. And I just feel like there's an opportunity there to try and really help more people in the workplace. We spend so much of our lives there and they cause us some serious stress. I think yeah. the organizations have a lot to answer for. <laughs> and if there's a way that we can do the work on ourselves and try to manage our relationship with the things that stress us, mm. then that's, um, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because something like 80,000 hours you spend at work, isn't it, during during your lifetime? So it's insane. It's a huge (laughs) amount of your lifetime spent at work.
1: That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got to try and make it enjoyable. You know, they don't have to be these places that we dread going to and that, you know, are Hmm. dysfunctional. You know, we can have win wins in the employment relationship.
0: Fantastic. Right. First things first, we'll start off with that extensive uh, outdoor experience that you've got. so did that start at an early age or or was that something that came in earlier on in uh, or later on in life sorry
1: yeah I think that I think it came on later on in life to be honest and I think it's really driven by the people that are in your life at those particular points in time mm-hmm. um I think from a young age though my experience with the outdoors I guess is like any child is you've got that wonder and that zest at that age that if you've got a little bit of garden space or just a little patch of green at the park then you know th- the life is outdoors for children isn't it well it was for me as a child and we had a-, a park at the top of the hill we had um a golf course at the bottom of the hill so that was great to go in and collect all the conkers that had fallen off of the trees so you know everything was just wonderful outdoors And um, but I always lived in the city so right um I think if I'm thinking so what comes to mind when I think about the outdoors coming from Scotland is of course the Scottish Highlands yeah and my relationship with that started from a very young age because my mum's aunt lived in a harn out Loch tayway so we used to drive there all the time when me and my brother were small children right Mm -hmm. through and that was really i would say my first experience of the real outdoors you know um the hills and the scenery and i probably didn't appreciate it fully at that age but really grateful that i've had that exposure because that's obviously what in later life i've circled back to and Um, It probably wasn't until my late teens that I ventured into things like camping. And again, that was the the friends that I had at that time were experienced at camping and we used to go out um, various different places in Scotland, usually for my birthday at the end of April and my friend's birthday at the beginning of October, which was actually perfect timing for missing the midges because you you just miss them, (laughs) but you usually still crack it with some really nice, uh, you know, comfortable weather, you know, early october late uh, april are pretty nice times comfortable times to go camping and so yeah i would say late teens is when i probably ventured out there and became a bit more adventurous mm-hmm. um but the seeds were definitely planted with where family were um in the highlands
0: because you you all that sort of generation that that wouldn't wouldn't have grown up with huge amounts of technology at home Indeed. or, or in- yeah so And going out there, that was sort of very family driven then in your younger years of getting to go out into the Scottish Highlands and things. So you said you lived in a city. Uh, which, Which city was that in Scotland?
1: Yeah. So um, family, we lived in Glasgow. So until I was four, we were right in the West End, right on Byers Road. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to Crawford for most of my primary school. And then we moved to East Kilbride and we stayed there for the majority of uh, me and my brother going to school um so yeah and then i when i moved out from home it was always in the city center in glasgow so Mm. i've always been that city person i love the city and i love the highlands i feel like i'm not ready to live somewhere so remote Mm. um i'm still attached to the city but i massively appreciate it when i'm there yeah
0: so do you feel like you get that um crossover where you use the highlands as an escape from uh, the rush of having uh, living in a city life and, and then being able to go away and you know adju- uh, sort of relax and adjust and yes chill out in the highlands and then go back just to your chill life
1: yeah go back to the city life definitely but I think it's changing I definitely think it's changing I think that my parents recently moving to St. Philan's is definitely uh, that feels like home to me I love thinking about where my parents are mm-hmm. um it's when I go back there it's I don't even go to to this the last trip I went I didn't go and see my friends I just stayed I stayed (laughs) to my mom and dad's house and I even went walking with my dad because sometimes I do I do just want to stay on the sofa in the kitchen and that's it (laughs) um but yeah I, I just love it there it's just calming and I definitely see that as I'm getting older there's a shift in where I think I want to be so um I definitely need green spaces, that's a must. I couldn't just be in the concrete jungle. I need to have some form of nature, Some something green needs to exist, or the ocean, you know, there, there's got to be something there. Um, you know, I lived in Helensburgh for a while as well, and that's beautiful, um, a really small town, but gorgeous, gorgeous scenery. And then you've got Loch Lomond, not too far from there. Um, So we're very lucky in Scotland. I feel like there are lots of pockets of nature all around Um, and in Singapore as well. I mean, it's gorgeous. I didn't know what to expect before coming here and it's a lot greener than I thought. You know, I really thought it was going to be, you know, it's got all the condos and all these buildings and the construction is never ending in Singapore. But the green spaces and the wildlife, it's just something different yeah, it's lovely.
0: That's what I was going to ask is what's it like living in Singapore? So are you that far away from green spaces when you walk out of your your house or wherever no. you're living there?
1: No, you're really immersed in it and every project, every new building project that they have, there has to be a balance of how much greenery they put in so they're very, very um, there's a huge emphasis on what are the different, what's the different foliage and different plants and everything else and trees that they're actually building into construction projects mm-hmm. and that is just wonderful so you literally, I'm looking out the window now and all I see is tons of green on people's balconies and the trees that they've planted and the the, the um. Development that I live in. So I'm a five-minute walk away to the park connector, and then maybe another 10 minutes I'm down at the coast. Now that's interesting because it's got all the ships out of out the water. So it's not the kind of, you know, pristine beach scene that you would expect to see in the tropics. It's very different, but it's quite iconic, you know. It's what we get used to. Um, but yeah, we've got the the hornbills, the, the birds. Uh, it's just it's just nice. There's something to look at as soon as you're outside and even from inside, you know, you look out into such lush greenery.
0: I mean, that's so vitally important for human beings to have those sort of green and blue spaces. A lot of research is being done at the moment to to show that the, the mental health benefits of being out in gr- green and blue spaces. So it's fantastic yeah. to see that, you know, one of the UN uh, um, objectives is... With its sustainable development, but also including that in producing green spaces in new developments. So that's fantastic to hear.
1: Yeah, that's definitely something Singapore do well. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, I guess if it's because it's a, a very densely populated area, so you know, yeah, to, it's
1: pretty small. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that to have that sort of balance of green space while still being able to accommodate the amount of people you've got is fantastic. Yep. So let's let's go into so when when did you decide that you were going to go and start doing these sort of ultra endurance events so obviously you well. said as as a as a young person you know you, you've sort of left the city went out to chill out in the in the great outdoors in the highlands and stuff this is yeah. something this is something quite different from chilling out in the highlands so just just talk, talk it's us through this when very this different
1: start? Well, the key driver has always been charity. So there's been a cause. Um, The Edinburgh Marathon was raising money for Macmillan Cancer. Mm -hmm. And um, the marathon in Singapore was raising money for the employer that I worked with at the time called Study Group. They partner with uh, a lot of universities in the likes of Australia, New Zealand, UK, North America. And um, they pave the way for students who are wanting to study overseas. And on their... Um, corporate social responsibility side, they worked with Plan International mm-hmm. and they um, helped to fund different projects in the developing world or where places have been hit with natural disasters and they're helping to rebuild schooling infrastructure. Right. And so the, the Singapore Marathon was about that. So I would say I never kind of go in willingly and think, oh, I'd really like to test myself and go and run a marathon. There's <laughs> there's always been a cause behind it and that has been the main driver to actually get me through it and keep me going to be honest I think I would give up long before but knowing that there's knowing that there's a cause it really motivates you but of course it's it's always a great achievement you know there's a real sense of oh I can't believe that my body was able to do that and um, the training is tough but it's also it's enjoyable and if you can take that time to really sort of embrace that and and Live in that moment of, oh, okay, yeah, this is hard. I, I remember um, I was mentioning there that Singapore is quite a small place. And I really found that out when I was doing the marathon training, mm-hmm. because the way I started the training for that, I, so I, I live on the east of the island and my employer was out west. Um, and so I would leave INSEAD and I would get the train and then get to a stop that was a like, suitable distance that I could then just run home from there. And then I would work my way back so I could get off at the earlier station and the earlier station. And then it came to I had to just run home from my work. And that wasn't long enough to get the mileage up. <laughs> so that was when I really sort of realized, yeah, Singapore is really, really small place. Um, and it's hard in the heat. You know, it's a yeah. it's a whole new level of challenge when you're in this. It's always got this um, humidity in Singapore. You you know, we're right on the tropics. And yeah. Um, and that that's really tough really really tough
0: yeah I bet well I mean I, I did the marathon in Porto oh yeah we, we did it uh and it was only nine, eighteen, nineteen 18 19 degrees so I can't imagine what it was like in a really high humidity place like Singapore to to run a marathon that would yeah. have been
1: you start really early in the morning so you start at about 5 a.m or maybe it's earlier maybe it's 4 a.m it's 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 dark anyway so you're having to get up at, I remember setting the alarms for two in the morning to make sure that that John and I got there on time we ran it together and um yeah it, it, so the faster you go the better because if you can finish it in the dark great but we you know we are not the super athletes you know we we were doing it for a good cause and um, and so even though I put in the, the shift with the training, I'd actually caught a cold in the days running no. up to it, which, which I then researched and learned that that was actually quite common in the tapering off period just before the marathon. You're more susceptible to picking up these sorts of things so that was a bit of a shame but um it didn't stop me I still I still was able to run it wasn't you know so debilitating that I had to to drop out and I just thought I'll do my best and if I need to drop out then I will I'll listen to my body but managed to do it but you know in the dark it's quite glorious and we were making really good time and I thought hey this is this is actually did I say this is actually quite enjoyable <laughs> and then the sun came up and it was just <laughs> Oh, my gosh. And it's the one time that you really hope for that tropical rain in Singapore. And it just did not come that day. I don't think there was a cloud in the sky. It was just so tough. So, so tough. So, yeah, I think I think we eventually crossed that line just over six hours. So it was a really long marathon, (laughs) really, really long process. Still
0: still a very good effort, I have to say. (laughs) And and so the, the the other challenges, like going across the highlands and stuff, when when did you do that one?
1: Now, when would that have been? It's quite a while ago. They don't do the Caledonian Challenge anymore. I think they didn't get the numbers um, in the end. And that was raising funds for Foundation Scotland. Um, now, when would I have done that? May, I want to say around about twen, twen, uh, 2012, around mm-hmm. about then, I think um and that was actually it was quite a sad story we lost one of our colleagues who always wanted to do it and he um he died he he was in an accident and unfortunately lost his life and we did that in his memory and, and we raised a, a lot of money for for the, you know a, a good cause again and um and that one you know we had to you you have to train a lot you have to break in the shoes um so that that was again just requiring an an intense effort of yeah it was around that time because I remember I'd just done the marathon and then I was going straight into that two weeks later so my feet were already wrecked from the marathon and then I had to (laughs) you know endure this challenge for 24 hours walking in the dark for part of it and um but but you know there's when you do this with a team of people you get each other through and the infrastructure that was behind that it's such a shame they're not running it anymore because the infrastructure that that was behind that of support at each checkpoint to get you through to feed you to get you ready and bandaged up for the next leg um yeah it was just a fantastic effort and one of my colleagues um really really suffered um with her shoes and she dropped out at the checkpoint just before the nighttime um part and so we all went back next year because she was determined to do it and we watched her finish um the line uh, the year later which was really nice fantastic. so yeah it it was hard but it's, I mean again gorgeous scenery and of course me being me I've always got a camera on me. Yeah. So I'm I'm stopping everybody's not wanting to break the flow and I'm stopping every <laughs> you know few miles to to take quite a lot of photographs and I'm glad I did because um that's documenting the journey for people too you know it's it's a nice thing to to capture a few snaps but not on a phone you know it was a proper camera. <laughs>
0: So you were carrying extra weight whilst you were doing it as well. I was. Yeah,
1: it was just a little small <laughs> compact. So it was fine.
0: <laughs> it's, it's interesting you say that because we, we had um we had a, an ultra endurance athlete on uh called Sean Conway and he had said that he would have it would have been interesting for him to like go back to doing um events and things like that with just uh nothing there like no, no phone yeah. and stuff because he he records himself on this phone for notes for the future. Um, so it's interesting that you were doing that. So, in, you know, there's, there's a there's a conversation there for sort of like, you know, are you doing that for posterity or are you present in the moment when you're taking these photos or, you know, yeah. really going through the motions?
1: Well, definitely in the moment, um, and learning to just take one photo because the the, the digital photos, the digital cameras, um, we we can take hundred photographs of the same thing, just hoping that one of them is a bit more perfect than the other. And we don't need to do that, you know. Um, we need to have a little bit of trust that that we're going to have a good a good snap. The same way that when we had our little disposable wind up cameras, they always turned out all right. Okay, you had a few weird ones, but. <laughs> but on the whole you've got some gems in there and that's all you need you just need the occasional gem so Hmm. I've really been kind of training myself to do that just take one take one or maybe two photographs of something and then move on quickly rather than you know halting what you're doing and I think that's such an important point that you raise Craig about being able to actually live it that's magical that's there's a real you know grounding in that ability to just observe and be immersed in where you are so yeah I've I've become better at that in the years I would say it's something I still need to work on um I take less photographs I try not to on the phone um yeah but it's hard it's it's all around us isn't it
0: <laughs> yes and and so just just to finish off with the uh the cl- the climbing of the mountain because that's a that's a whole yeah. different level because you've got the altitude to compete with as well so that's how right, was that yeah. for you?
1: Um, well again I kind of go into these things a little bit naive I think if I knew what to expect that might be a different story but I kind of go into these things I'm up for things I've got a bit of a zest for life and I, if somebody invites me to something which has always been the case with these challenges I've usually somebody someone else's idea mm-hmm. and I say yeah yeah I'll, I'll do that with you and um so when this slot came up and my friend said do you want to take my ticket I can't go I, I literally had about Four weeks and and that was it. So there's not enough time to kind of panic or think about what you're doing. But I'd also been training. I'd been doing ten ks in Singapore, um, so I'd been running. So I had a base level of fitness that I knew would would get me through it. Um, and that was great because it's it's a really nice experience. We did it through a company called Amazing Borneo. So you 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 get there and they drive you partway you're, you it just felt like for hours we were driving through the most amazing jungle space. Um just phenomenal. I, I felt like I was in Scotland in parts of it, but it was even bigger. You know, it was a much bigger scale. Yeah. Um, and it was just incredible. So you stay overnight and then you start really early and you 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 go part way and then you sleep for a few hours and get up at something like two in the morning to do mm-hmm. the final summit so that you're there for the, the sunrise. And of course, everybody, we're passing as we're going up, we're passing people coming down from the night before. And they were saying, oh, we didn't get to see the the sunrise that was completely overcast. We didn't get to see it this time. So we didn't have that kind of end goal in our minds. But that was really I remember. I remember giant steps that really require you to do the splits. That's what I remember about that path. And. Because again, it's an experience, and because you're getting that there's there's a when you go part way up, uh, so it's four thousand meters to the summit. Um, but when you go part way up, and I can't remember how, just how far you get to before you do the final summit, but um, you're obviously well fed, and there's a big buffet there and everything else, and the people that are running up and down the mountain, that you're overtaken multiple times by these really experienced ramblers who are just you Know, like mountain goats up and down this mountain with massive food supplies on their back. And I remember this guy who I think he looked like in his face, he looked like he was about 70. And he, the, the muscles on his cast, I just remember, I remember him running, skipping over these hills, and I'm trying with my little legs, trying to, you know, do the splits to get up onto this big rock. It just felt like the steps were massive, you know. Um, so you were constantly out of breath. I, I remember. Um, getting out of breath about 100 steps in and staying out of breath for the rest of it but it was manageable it was a kind of manageable out of breathness Um, and again the scenery was just out of this world Um, there was a point where we reached above the clouds and there was a team of people playing football and I thought if that football goes off the edge like <laughs> <laughs> it's not like being in a
0: parking glasgow and going i'll go get it exactly <laughs>
1: like that's gone and hopefully it doesn't catch someone on the way down um but again just a great experience and and they've really made that accessible to people they've they've put in a good pathway to get people there and then you can do i can't remember what you call this but they did a kind of it's not sailing, but it's um It's you you could opt to not go down the full path on the way back. You could do a little bit of abseiling down part of it. It's not abseiling. I can't remember the term of of what you do. So we did that as well, which was challenging a lot of fears that I had. Um, Again, just kind of going head first into things that you've never really done. But because the support is so great by the people that organize these sorts of things, you're in really capable hands and they they show you what to do and they just put you at ease. And yeah, that was something that I would do again. You know, I think that um, it's something that my husband is keen to do. So, you know, I I would really like to do that. I would love to do Kilimanjaro. I would really love to work up to that. Um, There's just something, I can't describe it. There's just, um, there's a presence, there's a magic, there's an energy about climbing hills. There's just something... Super about it.
0: Fantastic. I mean, this the, it can be quite freeing, quite relaxing, yeah. quite freeing. And I think one of the best moments was like being up for me was up on top of a ski resort at like three thousand meters on top of this glacier, <sighs> and you're just looking over the snowy Alps, and that was just, oh, it was just mint. Some of the best times it's, I've it's had great. is is at the top of mountains. So
1: yeah it's it's fabulous really fabulous and that's something that I'd, I'd love to do as well i've not had a chance to to do the skiing and see the alps so that's on the bucket list too lots bucket. of hills on the list <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it was interesting we'll move on to the next bit because what you were saying was is obviously you you didn't grow up with a lot of technology because you're of that generation where it wasn't mainstream um how old are you if you don't mind me asking
1: i'm 38 next month
0: 38 next month. Yeah you were you still had a, a huge period where there wasn't mainstream technology but the interesting bit is is now that you will take a camera out with you and make sure that you've got a camera whilst you're out walking and things like that that's so, right yeah so, so there's an interesting juxtaposition so when you were younger what sort of technology did you have we're just talking digital technology not like clothing and
1: yeah stuff. so digital tech so i I I remember my final years of school we were on the cusp of the internet becoming really accessible and Yahoo was massive and everyone had a Yahoo mail or a hotmail that was just on the rise and that was just as I was leaving my final year of school so I was 17 16 17 Mm -hmm. and um, before that though so we had consoles we did have games consoles in the house and it was usually my brother that had them and, and I loved them but I would have to sneak a chance to get access to it. But if who was ever out then I would be in there playing the games. And I remember when I was about 12 or 13, I got a PlayStation for my Christmas or birthday and it was mine and it was so I just remember being so grateful. it was brilliant and I got Final Fantasy 7 and Croc with it. They were the games, two games that I got. and um and actually for for a good year, solid year, I was on that PlayStation all day, every moment that I had when I wasn't at school, every weekend. And the only thing that changed that is I accidentally pulled it off the shelf one day when I was playing a game and it broke. And lo and behold, what did I do? I went outside and, you know, continued with my life. But actually, that, that pull of the console kept me in the house for a solid year, yeah
0: that's that's quite interesting so but because because you broke the console that you ended up because throwing... it broke
1: it yeah <laughs> and you know I might not have told my parents that they might have just thought oh she's got a life again she's going out with her friends again <laughs> <laughs> I was just kind of hoping that it would never come up but I was missing it I was gutted I was like oh I was so enjoying that game um and I can fall back into that you know and the thing with me and PlayStation five minutes in the PlayStation world is about 12 hours in real life. So that's concerning, you know, the amount of time that can go by and you can maybe call that a flow state, you know, that, um, that you're in that situation of time just passes because you're so in the moment and enjoying what you do. But when it comes to tech, there's a definitely a balance to be had when it comes to how long we're spending on our devices. Um, and yeah, I can fall into that trap of um too much time on the console. I haven't for a while, but whenever I do get a game that I'm engrossed in, it's like every every moment that you get, right? Console on, and then you'll see two o'clock pass, three in the three in the morning pass. And that's yeah. not healthy. That is not healthy. You don't even go to the bathroom in those moments. And that's, you know, I have to rein it in. <laughs>
0: yeah i i know that feeling um <laughs> i did i did a lot of that as well when i was younger yeah you get you get one game and then you get fixated on on completing it and yes. uh yeah so so but that's that's quite interesting that you were saying that um and so and and you still that still happens to you you still get sort of engrossed in that even that, i can do yeah
1: yeah so, i can do And um, less so PlayStation. I've not... I I kind of go for odd spells, Mm -hmm. but just ridiculous games on my phone. I find them so addictive. And um, I, I really have to uninstall because sometimes it can be the first thing i go to when i wake up in the morning mm-hmm. and that's not the perfect morning routine that i crafted for myself you know it's it shouldn't even be in there but i just find these things so addictive but i also so i've been kind of tracking my habits for a while now and um, reflecting on them and i find that when there's a bit of stress going on or if i'm feeling a bit overwhelmed with stuff i go to these things as a distraction and as a bit of an escape and as a bit of in in this time where I'm completing this level of this game, I don't need to worry about anything else. And that's maybe okay in small doses, but I wonder if sometimes I'm not tackling head-on the overwhelm or the issue or the the minor stress that might be niggling away at me. And um, and I think. You know that's always a work in progress. Being able to look at your own habit patterns and think about well, what's the real issue of why I'm spending so much time on this. You know what would I be doing if if this wasn't accessible to me? I'd, I'd definitely be doing something more worthwhile. Um, so yeah, I'm conscious of that. That's something that uh, you know I'm a big um, bullet journal fan, so I have a lot of moleskins and I'll write in them most days, if not every day. Um, And that's my one source of truth of everything that I do from work to uh, the studies that I'm doing to tracking how well I'm taking care of myself in particular days. So I like to track every day if I prioritise my sleep, if I, um, you know, fueled my body with the right food, um, if I did enough movement, if I got enough movement in my day. And that has been shocking for for quite a while. You know, I've definitely not been doing much and, and the pandemic has definitely been a big um, part of that and the the working and all of that um, and the other one is have I meditated have I meditated today so I only give myself those four basic things of these are the things that feeds me that, that nourish me that, that feed into my well-being and being able to just have a visual representation on how much time am I spending on that just really helps me reflect and then reset and the great thing about the mindfulness stuff that I'm doing part of the the content is about self-compassion and that's about really when you've fallen into those traps or those habits that, that are maybe not serving you, your well-being so so well. Um, the self-compassion practices help you take action that's meaningful rather than beating yourself up about it. There's always a, okay, well, what, what's one thing I could do right now that counteracts that? So everything's a kind of counterbalancing act, but it, it starts with noticing and really paying attention to Um, where you're spending your time and going through a bit of a write-up or reflection on that that's something that's really helped me just be able to really set that time aside to do that that's been the game changer that helps me not go too far in one direction and get lost
0: i mean that's that's fantastic that you're putting those bound, those boundaries in and and those workarounds to help with that it's interesting you're saying that because a lot of uh, the past few guests that i've had on we've been talking about the whole idea of um you know going around to someone's house um and just going around there rather than um like giving them a message to say oh are you home or you know giving the ring or texting them before you ring them type thing you know and yeah there's a level of um space for for sort of that boredom but it, it, it's more than boredom it's it's a case of having that space to process before you go into something else and that's what that what you were saying there sounds like you give yourself that time to sort of process what's going on and you're right yes, a lot a lot of the definitely. time you use those games as a as a way of um avoiding the the, the issue you you use it as definitely and i think that's a lot of what the social media is obviously they want you to be on there as much as possible because that's how they make the money
1: yes <laughs> but it's, always,
0: it's it's an avoidance thing because you, want, is. you want to just stay oblivious or to
1: attention you. totally agree craig it's it's definitely um an issue and a cause for concern because you know we never have to be bored and I'm guilty of uh, we're watching a film and uh, if this plot line has got a bit dull then I'll go and check the phone and um, I've been you know experimenting with leaving my phone in another room and and we watched a film last night and I was present for the whole film because I left my phone in the other room and made a conscious decision to not go there and that was so much more you know enriching watching a film like that you know Um, but it is we, we never have to be you know, bored, we always have something that can vie for our attention. I actually did a digital detox two summers ago um, where I came off everything for seven days. And I I had my phone there. It was in a drawer and it would, I said to my parents, you can only speak to me if you actually ring me. I'm not doing a FaceTime. You Mm. have to actually call me if you need me. So everything was set up to be do not disturb, but I put them on a VIP list that they were the only people that could phone me and get Mm. through. And that was that that actually taught me a lot about where I would have an impulse to go and pick up my phone. And because I put it away, I I was having to, like, wrestle with that impulse for a little while in the first few hours. Mm. And then, you know, your thoughts do come when you're not watching TV, when you're not on the laptop, when you're not, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, um, your mind will that undercurrent of thoughts will will display and will come into the surface and you might not like everything that you see in there and that was a really really good week for me to be able to let some stuff that I thought had been processed and thought had been dealt with just bubble up to the surface and for me to go oh okay that is still there that is still on my mind and that allows me to um, work with it in a more productive way rather than just kind of not even aware that you're pushing it away or not letting it come to the surface mm-hmm. that's the thing about distraction we don't know what needs to you know display and then self liberate we don't know what's there if we don't let it be so that was a great week for me to to really sort of somebody who was practicing mindfulness a lot who really thought yeah I know what's going on in my mind that week was a great experiment for me to to actually see mm, i am allowing myself to be distracted I am going into avoidance behaviors and um yeah it just it just lets you notice that and do something about it
0: do you cover that in your mindfulness masters philosophical uh chat come into into it when you when you're talking it about does. mindfulness.
1: yeah so I did the digital detox just before I started the masters in mindfulness so at that point um So you you have three experiential modules and it's run in partnership with the Mindfulness Association. So they're a great resource for anyone that just wants to go and and just tap into their resources. And they've got a daily meditation set as well. And so you do a mindfulness-based module, which is really your foundational module of just learning how to pay attention, how to recognize what's going on in the mind. And then you move on to the second module, which is all of the compassion-based um, self-compassion work and I mean for me going into that module I thought module and compassion like, what on earth is going to get taught here that just sounds like fluffy nonsense and that is the module that was most transformative for me I, I'm really that that's the module that um, helps me tune into my inner critic I didn't think I had a strong inner critic I kind of I'm quite happy in life I, I you know get by pretty easily there's nothing that really really stresses me out but the work of that module unlocked that little voice that does beat me up and does chip away at me being, you know, wanting to take opportunities and that fear that comes in of, Oh, I could never do that. That's the, the, you know, the inner critic. And so that module was really transformative for me to be able to work quite skillfully with that and, and um, learn a bit of self-kindness and It's one of the things I definitely want to to help teach to others. I've I've been going through a couple of teaching qualifications to do that. But I'm always worried about, well, I was so sceptical going into that module. How do you help people recognise that they need that when these things are so silent within us? They are just so subtle and they really... Uh, are doing some damage to us that we don't even really see very obviously and that's that's the tricky thing so I need to I need to try and figure that out I guess and then the third module that you do after the mindfulness and and compassion is the insight module and that's working with energies of um, anger working with energies of jealousy um Working with pride, and that again, think things that you know I d- didn't really see that I was a jealous person, but actually going through the work of the module, you can see what things actually trigger you into that energy. And these are not energies to be ashamed of, or to try and push away, and try and sanitize ourselves of. There, there's, you know, positive things from that energy. They're transformative energies you can actually um do some good with and if you harness that energy in a different way it doesn't need to be destructive you can actually use it for good so that's the kind of experiential part of the of the um of the masters and um yeah what i've been kind of researching along the way is how does all of that relate to people at work you know how does that help people at work what research has, has gone into identify if mindfulness-based interventions are actually helpful in the workplace and if they are what in what way what, how are they helping people and that's that's kind of the line of inquiry that I'm going going down myself and especially the compassion practices because the thing about organizations that just perplexes me but it's, it's human nature it's just the phenomenon that is people at work and um, departments that hate each other that one department that hates another department and they work for the same organization and they're bad-mouthing the other department and colleagues just get on our nerves and stuff and and it's just fascinating to me that that's what happens and it's happens you know everywhere I've worked I've seen it and with the part that the clients I'm partnering with now they talk to me about it and you know, we can only ever do the work on ourselves. And when we do the work on ourselves and get ourselves to a point where these things are not triggers for ourselves anymore, then that there's a transformative potential that that can then help other people um, come along with you. So yeah, that's the kind of line of inquiry I'm going through.
0: Okay. And so have, have you seen i mean we 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 now live in a in a world where you you are so connected all the time yes and and let's go down the road because obviously that's that's your business that's that's where you've worked in in those sorts of companies is it a case of because they're so uh attached all the time you have to there's an expectation of you answering an email at eight o'clock at night or i know a lot of people who will work at the weekends because they can open their laptop up, answer a few emails, and then put it down and go away. So is that, is that yeah. something that 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 you think that might be a cause of it is because they're so reachable, they're so, you have to be so on it, certainly at a higher level as well. Um, yeah. Is that something that so. you've seen?
1: Yeah, that's definitely something that I've seen. But again, and, and it's something that I've also fallen into that trap of, and especially working with global organisations and you've got different time zones to then contend with as well, And I was doing, um, just as the pandemic began, I was doing lots of 10 p.m., 11 p.m. calls. But all it took was for me to say, I'm not free at that time. And guess what? The team found another time. So if you allow these things into your space, then people will do it. And that's not them taking advantage of you. That's actually ourselves saying yeah I'm agreeing to that and that's fine not to say that there's not expectations because I'm sure that there are some managers that expect things of employees and judge them but you know these are all the types of problems that I want to try and and help um, unearth and and solve Um, but the work starts with ourselves we are the only ones that can put that boundary in and it's perfectly reasonable to say I'm not going to attend a call at 10 p.m at night And maybe there's a rare occasion where it's advisable to do it, but it should definitely be the exception and not the norm. And for me, it definitely become the norm. And it's not surprising that I, I had suspected COVID. It was never diagnosed, but I had something nasty that lingered for eight weeks. And it was around that time. So I'm guessing that it probably was. And it's not surprising, you know, that the pressure I was putting myself under to always be on. And then that blurred line of home office. And I would have to, so again, being a reflector and, and, and looking at, okay, how did I do this week? Okay, energy level is, is awful. I'm now unwell. What can I do about this? And what are some boundaries I can set? And just a really simple one for me was just having a cleanup ritual at the end of the day that the laptop would be unplugged, the monitor would be unplugged. It's put away out of view. And that was just my little transitioning exercise that just helped me put work away from the home space yeah exactly and and just because you would have the commute in other occasions that you would um unwind on the train or uh, the drive home or or however you get home from work and that just wasn't accessible anymore so having to think a bit differently about how do i set these boundaries of my working space Mm. things like that are so important
0: because i know people um certainly like Kelly was, was the previous guest um, and yeah. her, she she was doing a master's whilst also doing online teaching. So course, she's yeah. a teacher, so <laughs> she was doing a master's as well. So it's a case of, uh, and, and I guess a lot of people through the pandemic, th- th- they have to work at home and I need that. I need that detachment from where I'm working, from where I'm home because home is where you relax and it's, you know, leisure. Yeah. leisure time and then you go to the office to do the work yes. um so that's that's got to be a tricky thing for people to 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 do that and it's interesting that that's that was your ritual is that you would unplug everything turn everything off and then that would be it and obviously putting in those boundaries of uh, saying you won't join a call at 10 10 11 o'clock at night you know yeah one of my previous guests she was a um she worked in uh, theater directing but she would say, um, "I only answer my emails between these times." So, you know, yes. if, and if if it's outside those times, then she doesn't get back to you until she goes and looks at them. So, there's it's a lot of those boundary things that's really interesting, and definitely to link it in with the masters that you're doing as well. It it, it sort of um, puts academic fact in behind what what people are, are saying. So that's, that's right. That's the interesting bit.
1: Yeah, I'm interested in what I'm researching at the moment is the COVID response of organizations. So a lot of this sort of stuff is coming up about that always on culture Mm -hmm. Um, and the CIPD, the the Chartered Institute of of, um, uh, Development is, you know, also running a number of reports and statistics around how overstretched people really are. Mm. And Aside from eye strain, you know the, the simple things of just looking at a monitor for that length of time—it's not healthy. So, I'm a, I'm a big fan of little hacks that really help us um, remind us of um, you know look away from the screen. So, I remember reading about this 2020 20, 20 principle: every yep. 20 minutes, yeah, look at something 20 feet away for 20 seconds. And I use the little um, break timer plugin on Chrome to you, you can customize that any way you like to have intervals, uh, however long you like however regularly you want them to, to pop up and that's been great but I've been going a little bit further with that recently that when I get that little pop-up I'm doing squats for the 20 seconds or <laughs> I'm like rolling my shoulders out because my body is just not it's it's just i'm not even using a proper ergonomic chair at home which is really which i know is is really dangerous but to try and counter that you know i joined a gym to make sure that i was actually going and i i had a pt for a short time um it's too expensive to keep doing but um when i did have him he was great because he was showing me all the postural problems that i had Mm -hmm. and he really worked with me on that 12 weeks to correct all of that and that's that's knowledge that I have now that I can kind of build into my office space that just stop me from being so rigid and, and bloodshot eyes looking at the screen so that just little simple things like that really help because especially when I'm doing design work on the laptop I will get lost it's the stuff I love to do and I will just get lost for hours if I don't have that little reminder that just pops up and You know, look after yourself. Look away from the screen. Go get some water. You know, we need these things because we get engrossed. And yeah, but that was interesting what you were saying about you know you have to find boundaries that work for ourselves. And I think being able to share what other people are doing is is really helpful for people to just experiment with things. That's the thing. There's no winning formula for this stuff, but it does need you to experiment with things. Track your own patterns and habits, and reflect on them. Yeah. you know
0: D- definitely and I think that the because we're not designed to sit down for eight hours at no. a time either that's <laughs> that's just not what the human body is designed for so and and
1: exactly uh,
0: you know ergonomic chairs aside uh, standing desks are, are a better way of doing things but people people aren't used to doing that so yeah and and it's interesting if you stand on your feet for eight hours a day how 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 do your feet feel? You know, if you're not used to that sort of thing, you know?
1: Yeah, it's different.
0: So d- d- we'll go on to the final bit. How do you think, so obviously uh, as as you've got older, you, your technology uses has changed, and you've you've sort of progressed into the corporate world where you're in human resources and there's a it's very computer intensive. Yep. How how do you think it's changed throughout your life and you know your perspective on, on your your technology usage throughout your life?
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's definitely become part of everyday life, whereas it used to be something that would be a go-to. It would be the gaming world. That would be the only thing that I would use tech for. And now it's become ingrained into really every part of life. Mm-hmm. Um the it's just always there that there's not aside from that detox and I'm going to do another one this summer aside from that digital detox I've always got some form of tech that's accompanying me through the day so it's changed massively and it's something that I have to be really conscious about what I'm consuming how much I'm consuming so all of these little boundaries and hacks really help me manage that and it's something that I need to do and it's always a work in progress I'll have moments of you know, embracing the things that enrich me in life and then um, going for weeks on end of getting, you know, going down a digital rabbit hole and and really spending too much time. So again, I'm constantly in counterbalance, constantly a work in progress for this sort of stuff. It's, it's not easy. And I think that, you know, I've been told as well in my career, I've been getting told for the two the the two decades that a robot will do my job one day and <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen and I've always been kind of skeptical about it and not to take away from you know all the great tech advances and AI can can give fantastic speed and, and insights but they are just that it's insights and I don't think that you can ever replace the emotive part and the rationalising part that's really needed in what is, to me, a very human job. And I don't think that any machine can ever... You can replicate that, yes, and they're doing that, but you can't ever replace that. And, you know, humans are not perfect. And there was a great documentary that I watched, actually, um last year. I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix, called Coded Bias. And um, And the researcher there... Was um looking into AI bias because she could only be recognized when she wore a white mask and it wouldn't recognize a black face. And so it was just so fascinating. And, and really, a lot of things resonated with me over why I don't think you can rely on this stuff because human beings are we're, we're not built to be perfect. We make mistakes. And the difference between us and machine is that we can reflect and we can choose a different path and we can learn from the past but if we're feeding the machines all of our mistakes from the past and the machine is doubling down on that because it thinks that it's right and good and how it should be then you know that's catastrophic to me that's 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 serious you know, repercussions for our society if um, if that's the way that we go. So, yes, I think, again, there's a balance to be had in all of that. So, yes, use the tech to make us more efficient, but don't do it in a way that it works people to the bone. And it, and there's that always on culture and that we're not looking after ourselves and we're doing things that are so unnatural for the way that we're built and yeah, I just don't think you can ever replicate. I mean, how many times in the rare occasion when you do need to phone an, a, an organization, it drives me mad when I speak to the bots. It drives me <laughs> mad. I want to speak to a real person. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. That um, on the rare time that I really have a serious problem and it needs to sorted out, I've already looked online, I've already looked in their archives to see who's at this problem before, haven't found what I'm looking for, need to speak to a real person, please. I don't think that that need is going to go away fully.
0: And you, you touched on efficiency there. Yeah. Um is is something I was I've been reading about and the, the more efficient and the more time-saving that we have the less time we actually have. Yes. Does, does that make sense? Yes.
1: yes, totally. We've become so efficient that we can do everything now. Everything can be done now, now, now now there's and this is a problem we shouldn't be always on it goes back to what you were saying about being compelled to sort of reply to an email that comes in if we get that you know our brains are wired to seek that notification and see what message we've been given and if we don't you know do the do not disturb mode to help us come out of that then we get trapped so there is definitely too much of efficiencies and there needs to be a what is enough what, what is actually enough and that's the kind of the problem with tech and globalization there's so much great benefit that we're seeing we 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 are able to operate in global markets now that's fantastic but on the flip side what does that mean for how we are fundamentally designed as human beings we have advanced way beyond what is natural for the way that we've been designed we're not there yet as human beings to cope with all of that and um I think that schools and I think my husband's a teacher and and did you say you had a teacher on before or just that they were doing their masters yeah they're a teacher yeah the homeschooling saga as well and just the the problem of social media and that sort of culture for kids mm. um it's another thing that kids have to be kind of guided on mm. and um and hopefully use these sorts of things responsibly as well because it's a minefield I feel like I don't think that I would have enjoyed having that sort of stuff I, I'm I, well let me re- rephrase that a different way I am really glad that I had the schooling that I had that was free from tech we had this we had these ancient computers and that was the only thing there was no uploading of photographs or sharing of (laughs) photographs there was no you know traps you could get yourself in by posting a stupid comment because you're young and you've not got experience yet I mean that would just be I'm mortified at some of the photographs I would post on Bebo when that was (laughs) a thing you know if I was doing all of that at school I, I'm just I'm really, really glad that I didn't have to navigate through that as a kid. So I think that parents and schools and kids, I think, have got it hard. Hmm. But they might say, actually, no, we don't have it hard. You know, they they've probably adapted and got on with it way better, and I'm probably catastrophizing it to a degree. but but maybe I'm not. and and there's there's some responsibility to be used when we engage with this sort of stuff. Um and that's so vital for our well-being, you know?
0: I think that's because you we come from a generation where we've had both sides of it um yes. whereas people that have grown up with it so 2000s onwards these these children that are becoming of uh into their eight, uh, like late teens early 20s they've grown up with it so you, yeah. you it's amazing how adaptive human beings are to it but you are That's seeing it. an increase in uh anxiety and depression and and all these other body dysmorphia conditions and things because
1: sure. there's a lot yeah. of
0: the perfect self on on these social media things so definitely yeah um well I, I was going to ask you uh how do you think it's changing modern day culture and, and society but I think you were answering it in, in in that thing that there's a lot of back and forth and there needs to be guidance on what these these platforms are doing to to individuals so
1: yeah there's got to be some guidance for people and um and just for us all to reflect on how we use it and how we consume it and um you know there's a lot if we just think about social media for example and, and who knows how this is all going to transform in future but you know once things are out there they're out there and you know even simple things like Um, reviews of organizations it's so easy to be you know Um, critical of people online and I feel like we're getting too far removed from how would you deliver this feedback constructively to someone face to face it would be different right or we might avoid the confrontation at all completely which again is not the right thing there's somewhere in the middle that we can have honesty and we can have respect and we can have um, growth opportunities and you know give people feedback for the right reasons but the difficulty with social media is I mean, you see all the negativity that's spread on there and damaging comments and, and the cancel culture, for example. And, you know, sometimes maybe that's warranted, but we are human, we are going to make mistakes. And we have this kind of public forum now that people are kind of used as an example when we're all susceptible to making these sorts of mistakes. And I just feel that we all need to reflect on Um, how would I manage this face-to-face with someone if I didn't have the keyboard there and didn't have a degree of anonymity, how would I handle this? And I think we need to bring a bit more of the human element back into what we do and how we use our tech. I think that's, that's something that I'm reflecting on at the moment myself and I've not never have not been perfect with you know I've I've written the reviews of, of places but I'm thinking twice now do I really need to sabotage something that you know somebody's livelihood or somebody's career uh, do I need to make this comment or can I see it in a more you know growth you know well-intended way
0: yeah exactly and it was interesting because you were saying you put it out on there, and it's out there, and for everyone yeah. to see, but human beings have are in that position where we're there's always that innate you want to leave something behind. and now that it's there, you're sort of at that point where you're immortalized now because you know if you put a, 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 these podcasts as long as the server stays up, they'll be out there. unless I take yeah. them down or something like that, or any of the videos you put up on YouTube, they're always they're there and they'll exactly. be there forever as long as the service yep. is still operating so these people and you know if if you die or something like that it's always there it will always be there so we've actually yeah. got to a point where we started although we are not immortal our things that we put out there are immortal so definitely it's interesting perfect it is
1: interesting it's a little bit frightening <laughs>
0: <laughs> a little bit yeah
1: but also exciting, you know. There's a lot of great things. There's a lot of great things. You know, I probably wouldn't have it any other way. We wouldn't be able to have this conversation just now without the beauty of tech. <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly. I mean, I wouldn't have had half of the conversations that I've had without this tech. So um, it does. It has. It has allowed, um, as you say, it's allowed us to be in a global market. It's allowed us to communicate across vast distances that we yeah. previously couldn't do, and in and in a more efficient way
1: yes indeed
0: perfect well thank you very much at thank the end of the, at the end of the podcast I always ask this ambiguous question if you could go and live <laughs> anywhere in the world um for a year off the grid um where, would you, where would you go and what would you do
1: oh my goodness that is a hard question and it's interesting because um my husband and I are about to pack up our life and sell everything we own and do a little tour of asia mm-hmm. so the first stop is bali but do i want to be there for a whole year i don't mm-hmm. know if i could be anywhere off the grid i think it's got to be back home
0: yeah
1: scotland highlands or japan maybe japan somewhere in the hills somewhere in the hills definitely and what, meditating what... every day oh,
0: okay <laughs> yeah well what would you what would you do for that year
1: i would um definitely take a stash of stationary supplies yep. and i would do drawing painting and yeah i would meditate and just live the way that i suppose we were supposed to
0: <laughs> fair enough that's, that's a perfect answer all right brilliant well thank you very much for coming on lorna
1: thank that you it's been
0: a great chat
1: yes i've thoroughly enjoyed it thank you so much
0: Good. no worries